You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar if I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time out I have The Nom number 16, which is a pivotal turning point for one of our book's characters. Our musical selection this time out is Light My Fire by The Doors, which was released on The Doors' debut album in January of 1967, and hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in late July of 1967. The song was not in the top ten of May 1967, which is when the story takes place. The top songs in the country that month included Something Stupid by Nancy and Frank Sinatra, The Happening by The Supremes, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You by The Monkees, Groovin' by The Young Rascals, and I Think We're Alone Now by Tommy James and The Shondells, which incidentally would be a huge hit for Tiffany 20 years later, in August of 1987. This particular issue is covered in March 1988 and came out on November 24th, 1987. Light My Fire is used at the very beginning of the story and is famous for not just because it was one of the door's biggest hits, but because Jim Morrison, after agreeing to change the lyric Girl We Couldn't Get Much Higher for the band's performance on The Ed Sullivan Show that September, sang the lyric as originally written instead and got himself banned from The Ed Sullivan Show <laughs> and television, more or less. Good for the Goose was written by Doug Murray. Wayne Van Zant did the breakdowns. Jeff Isherwood handling the finishes. The letterer was Augustin Moss. Color by Nelson Tomtov. Editor was Michael Higgins. Consulting editor was Larry Hama. And your editor-in-chief was Tom DeFalco. John Beatty once again did the cover, which shows Ram Narain on his knees with his hands tied behind his back and blindfolded, while two VCs stand behind him with AK-47s. We open in the hooch where the guys are listening to the aforementioned Doors classic and are incredibly bored. Clark talks about how this reminds him of his time in Korea in 1953 and how this one time the North Koreans tried to drop anthrax on American positions at night using a hot air balloon but made the mistake of flying when there was a full moon so they had their cover completely blown. Whatever the point of the story here is, uh, it's not made because Alarnik interrupts with orders that the American forces will be pacifying South Vietnamese villages in VC hands, and that means they have to be ready at 0600. After Alarnik leaves, Sarge talks to Rob and tells him that he has a new set of orders and he will be leaving. He's not exactly happy about it, but he's more concerned about his men. As he and Rob sit down for a drink, he points out that Alarnik's a nut, and somebody needs to be a buffer between Alarnik and the guys. Plus, someone has to watch out for Ramnarine, because he's getting out of hand. Rob excuses himself and goes to talk to Ramnarine, telling him to watch himself or at least be more private about whatever he's involved in. Ramnarine says, yeah, we wouldn't want to screw up Rob's chances for promotion, right? Rob says he doesn't give a crap. And uh, Ramnarine does need to be ready to go the next morning. At 0600, the choppers are loaded and head to the two small villages. Alarnik says he and Rob will take the lead on going to one village with the men and sends Ramnarine, Brooks, and Brown to the other one. Rob questions sending just three men to do a whole village and is told to be quiet. Ramnarine grumbles about Rob, and in the first village, Alarnik seems pretty confident that his informant is telling the truth about having about no VC having been in the village lately. 
Rob has Andy show them some things that he found, and, well, he tells Alarnik not to be mad at the informant, saying the VC would have killed him anyway. Alarnik orders a full sweep of the village. Rob asks about Ravnarine, thinking that since the VC was in this village, they are surely waiting for him in the other village. Alarnik says that Ravnarine can take care of himself and orders the sweep. Once the weapons and equipment are found, he begins berating the old man, and just then, there's gunfire. Alarnik doesn't exactly seem to know what he's doing as they're completely pinned down and they don't have much area to look for cover, considering, well, they're in the middle of a rice paddy. Rob helps him get safe and back to solid ground and gives the orders to the other guys to fight back at the enemy. Alarnik continues to panic. He has Santa spring the radio and calls him for help. Rob asks what the heck he's doing, especially since Ramarine's still out there, and Alarnik points his gun at him. Alarnik requests an airstrike. Rob once again protests, saying that Ramnarine is still in the other village. Alarnik yells that he doesn't care about Ramnarine and needs to save the rest of them. Santa yells that Alarnik is crazy and draws Rob's attention to Brooks and Brown, one of whom is pretty hurt. They tell him that Ramnarine is still back in the village, covering. Rob tries to get the airstrike canceled, but it's too late. Rob protests one last time when the boys are supposed to be picked up, but Alarnik points out that nobody could have survived the airstrike and that Ravnarine is most likely dead. Then he orders the men to mount up. A consternated Rob gets on the chopper while a mile or two away, a captured Ravnarine watches the dust off and then is blindfolded and led through the jungle by his captors. While on the chopper, Alarnik tells Rob not to worry about panicking back there because the men did just fine. Later at the club, Rob asks Sarge if there's anything he can do, and Rob gets upset about how really there is nothing they can do. A moment later, Sarge introduces Sergeant Roland, who is the new first sergeant. Roland offers a toast to Ramnarine. The next day, Rob goes to see Roland, who says he's trying to figure out what to do about Alarnik, and offers well, Rob some whiskey. He then tells Rob he has a little job for him, and we find out that Roland wants Rob to bust anyone for smoking grass, although the man drinks like a fish nearly early in the morning. Plus, he won't do anything about Ramnarine. Clark tells Rob, Hey man, it's the army way. You know that. Rob replies, Do I, Andy? Do I really know anything? One of the better things about this book is the diversity of its cast as well as the individual character development that Doug Murray was incredibly adept at. Yes, Murray goes to the tried and true tropes of the war story. Ramnarine's the shifty one. Alarnik is the scared superior officer. And those in charge don't seem to be able to do things right. But the way he seems to be going about it doesn't feel hackneyed. I think it's because we've gotten development of characters who we probably didn't expect to see get fleshed out when the series started. Rob is the prime example. When he started out, he was basically a toady for Top. He was the guy who kept the corrupt officer's nose clean. And if you didn't go beyond the, those first couple of issues, you would have had hated Rob just as much as you hated Top. In fact, add in that Rob is black, and I'm sure that there is some sort of racial stereotype or epithet you could use for him. I'm not going to say what it is, because A, this is a clean show for the most part, and B, I'm actually not exactly sure what it would be, so I can't say it. Uh, But since Rob found himself in harm's way at the hand of Top's underhandedness, he started to develop into the guy who earnestly cares for the others around him. It makes sense, then, that he's coming into some sort of conflict with Ramnarine. Ramnarine seemed pretty sly at the start, although he also seemed honest because he helped get Top into trouble. But it's been obvious during the last six or seven issues that he's clearly out for himself, and the reason he volunteered to get Top in trouble was not that he wanted to root out dishonesty in the army, but that he didn't want to have to quote-unquote 
work for someone in that regard. And why not? He's got more to gain by going into business for himself. And at this point, he's basically dealing pot out in the open on base. And Rob says something to him to, well, it's out of genuine concern. Ramnarine obviously doesn't see this as a concern. He sees it more like Rob kissing up so he'll get a promotion. And probably holds the same grudge when he gets taken away. But as we see in the scenes where Alarnik is completely losing it out in the field, Rob is the one who is trying to delay the evacuation in order to make sure that Ramnarine is safe. Rob, it seems at this point, is the one of the few only honest men in an army of crooks and idiots. And I'm not saying that to disparage the United States Armed Forces, but if you look back at most of the characters in this comic, you'll see that, well, they're all flawed. Top was corrupt, Ramnarine is clearly out for some personal or monetary gain here, and then you have characters like Alarnik and Roland who also have their own flaws. Alarnik seemed to be ready for action, ready to command, but he demonstrates in a fit of irony that he doesn't have an instinct for the field and cannot handle himself when things don't go the way they're supposed to. The man clearly freaks out when the unit stumbles into an ambush. He's clearly covering for his mistakes when he orders the airstrike and then the dust-off. I'm not sure how much we're going to see of him. I'm not sure how helpful Roland is going to be as the new sergeant. Especially since the man, well, he's a drunk. And since his first order of business seems to be to get Rob to catch anyone smoking pot instead of, you know, taking care of this nutjob lieutenant. Which kind of completely misses the point, right? I mean, these men need a leader, not a nagging mother. And Ramnarine is the perfect example of that type of person who needs a, a, a true leader. I wanted him to get some sort of comeuppance for his corruption. But the guy was just making money on the side, so I don't think getting captured, potentially tortured, and killed by the VC is an appropriate consequence. Granted, we don't see what happens when Ramnarine is actually captured. All we know is that Alarnik sent him with two other guys into the other village and things went badly. Ramnarine could have gotten himself into trouble by doing something he shouldn't have and then maybe the consequence would have fit his actions. But we don't know that. Rob doesn't know that. Which is why Rob protests the airstrike and dust-off. You may have differences with someone privately, but when the two of you are out in the middle of a field or battle, you obviously set those aside because you didn't want that person to die. What will become of Jerry Ramnarine? I'm not exactly sure. I've read this series well beyond these issues, but it's been a few years, so I don't exactly know if we ever get a resolution to his story. If we don't, it would be disappointing, but also appropriate, as there were and still are United States combat troops who were declared missing in action during the war. What will happen with Rob and the changes in the 23rd, especially since Sarge is leaving? And it is sad to see Sarge go, by the way. But at least he's leaving in a way that doesn't involve him getting killed on the battlefield. Plus, his character basically had run its course. What will happen to the 23rd, then? Well, that's one of Murray's strengths of the series, especially since Ed Marks left. He's doing a great job of taking advantage of the serial nature of the medium, even though he's also keeping to the real-time narrative. Then again, if you think of it, things can take months to happen instead of the days or mere weeks that are used for the superhero storylines. Is war action every day? Not necessarily. And the relationships, both good and bad, between people build over time. Plus, he's made the reader want to see what happens next by leaving things quietly open-ended. It's not a cliffhanger ending in the sense that we have to have a to-be-continued at the end of every story. But we'll have a continuation of this in some way in the next issue. Wayne Van Zandt and Jeff, Jeff Isherwood on the art, by the way. 
excellent once again. Van Sant clearly has proven himself a solid replacement for like Michael Golden on pencils. He depicts the machinery, the vehicles, the settings with a solid amount of detail, and his character's facial expressions continue to be fluid rather than stiff, and he makes sure that each character has his or her own unique facial expression, which is necessary, because like I've said before, we're not dealing with superheroes here with their distinct uniforms. Each of these soldiers are basically wearing the same thing, and they're ordinary people, so they need to be recognizable in some way. Ramnarine's hardened face is distinct and clues you into his character. That allows us to see the anger he has when the VC whom have captured him show him the American choppers taking off. Additionally, since his entire capture and transport by the Viet Cong is done in silence, Van Sant and Isherwood need to convey the emotion of the scene effectively, and I think they do. To contrast, Rob has just enough innocence about him to make his earnestness believable. Ed Marks was almost too golly gee whiz at times, but Rob clearly is still a kid on some level, and the art team does a great job at conveying that. And that's it for this issue. When I get back, I'll talk about historical context, letters, and ads. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead-up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. <laughs> Prentice Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Prentice Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. May 1967 is not a very heavy month in terms of the history of the war. There are some bureaucratic shifts. Ellsworth Bunker replaces Henry Cabot Lodge as United States Ambassador to Vietnam, for instance. But for the most part, things seem relatively uneventful in terms of major combat. Two noteworthy events include the formation of CORDS, or Civil Operations and Revolutionary Development Support, which was an agency that set up to help the United States make inroads into the villages of South Vietnam in order to pacify them, the type of operation that was seen in this issue. This is important for the United States war effort because nearly 60% of South Vietnamese villages were under VC control, and as we've often seen, the VC did did pose a big problem for United States forces in the war. The point of Cords was to offer humanitarian aid to the villages in order to quote-unquote win hearts and minds and to help train the local militias to combat any VC aggressors. Another important action was from May 18th to the 26th, the United States entered the DMZ for the first time, engaged in several firefights with NVA troops. Both sides suffered heavy losses. Another event this month includes May 22nd, President Johnson urging North Vietnam to accept the peace compromise. Outside of the war, but of some sort of importance, uh, you have the wedding of Elvis Presley to Priscilla Bullio or as we know her now, Priscilla Presley, especially if you've seen the Naked Gun movies. And in sports, the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup, and that is the last time the Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. So it's been 
almost 50 years. As a New York Rangers fan, I feel their pain. Incoming this month. We have only two letters, but um, I'm actually going to do something I don't usually do. And I'm going to read both of them because they're both contrasting views in a sense. And uh, one of the strengths about this letter column is that you get a lot of people writing in, debating some of the politics involved with the war, debating each other, debating the editors, and being critical. And it's almost as if they're working out some of their feelings about the war and what was going on. And when you consider this is, what, 87, and the war had ended not 15 years earlier, 14 years earlier, uh... 12 years if you count the fall of Saigon in 75, but the the end of U.S. involvement in about like 73 being kind of that, that benchmark, uh, you know, it's about a decade, decade and a half. So, and you've got movies like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and, and, and things coming out. So you, uh, it's really interesting to see what a visceral reaction some people had. This first one is from Christine Buongiorno of New York, New York. Dear Michael, I've written before to letter calls in the 60s when the nom, like some deadly flower, was in full bloom. For the last 18 years, I've been quiet, not because I've had nothing to say, simply because I lack the urge to say it. I've been reading the nom since its inception, doing so even though it was most painful at first. Nom brings back many memories of the 60s, the worst of them. To myself and others like me, America was no different than Nazi Germany. LBJ, who we fear would precipitate... A nuclear holocaust was thoroughly despised and hated, passionately by some and dispassionately by others. Not unlike other bullies, he was a very weak man, and like many weak men, was extremely dangerous. But the so-called leaders weren't the only ones to catch the enmity I'm speaking of. It was shared by all the people who took the attitude of quote-unquote my country right or wrong, and it was also shared by the soldiers. The consensus of the anti-NOM opinion at the time was, if the soldiers refuse to follow Gestapo orders and lay down their arms, there can't possibly be a war. A war is a lot like a party. You can have the best food and drink available, but if nobody comes, then there's no party. I'm not ashamed to say that I felt this way myself at the height of the NOM non-war. Where I differed from most of my friends is in the fact that I couldn't bring myself to hate or even blame the vets. If anything, I sympathized and commiserated with those who came home with arms and legs missing, yet could not feel, like those who fought against the Nazis, that they would sacrifice part of their bodies for a worthy cause. There were no monuments to the non-vets who were, without question, the most heroic of all America's fighting men. I say not might be, but were. They were the first U.S. soldiers to fight on four different fronts simultaneously. They fought the Viet Cong in their own turf, while simultaneously fighting the people at home who despised and hated them. They fought the VA that offered them the barest minimum of aid, and often seemed to be punishing them because somehow Nam was entirely their fault. And last but not least, they had to wrangle with their own consciences. Perhaps they didn't fight for the same worthy cause as those who opposed and stopped Uncle Adolf, yet the cause they fought for was no less worthy. As no one else did, their efforts showed the American people that the government is not necessarily synonymous with the flag. More importantly, they showed that no matter what the government does, our flag should never be disrespected. Even when there is a government that lies and shames us, there is always an America to be proud of. And the flag represents that America. Not the America of lies and half-truths, dishonor and stupidity, but the America that has ever been the land of the free and the home of the brave. Because of what these men did and gave, another Vietnam will not be so easy. It wasn't those like myself who awakened the country to the difference be differences between the government, the few, and America, the many. 
but rather the Vietnam vets. We owe them a great deal and should make some kind of effort to show it. Those who agree can contact me. Christine Mungiorno, and she gives her uh, she gives her address. Other other letter is from Joseph Moran, a captain in the U.S. Army. Dear Sir, when your non-comic came out, I was quite pleased. It offered a realistic alternative to the otherwise sanitized portrayal of war in the media, comic or otherwise. Recently, however, the nom has become superficial, cliched, and trendy. The biggest problem is that you tend to portray things without any understanding of the context they occurred in. Fighting an insurgency isn't the same as the sort of conventional war that Americans understand. You are up against an enemy who doesn't wear uniforms, who uses women and children as combatants, and who employs terrorism and propaganda in addition to regular combat. Consequently, a different set of tactics are needed to fight these insurgents, including relocation of villagers who support the enemy, some rather ruthless intelligence-gathering measures to get at the insurgent underground, and quite often killing people who in World War II wouldn't have been considered soldiers, like kids who toss hand grenades. These are the things that Americans have to understand, or we will be defeated again in the future as we were in Vietnam. A defeat caused largely because too many in the U.S., including those in the military, were thinking in conventional warfare terms. I think the thing you miss about Vietnam was the sense of crusade. I first entered the military in 1972, during the closing days of the war. There was a spirit that America was going to Vietnam to accomplish great things, to save the country from communism, and to bring the benefits of the U.S. to the Vietnamese people. Of course, a lot of our problems came from trying to impose American ways on the Vietnamese. For instance, it simply isn't realistic to expect an Asiatic culture to adopt Western-style democracy, especially in the middle of a war. Despite the popular image of the war being a U.S.-inspired bloodbath, the American use of force was restrained. During the bombing of North Vietnam, the United States imposed strict restrictions on the Air Force bombing of civilian targets. And in fact, the number of civilians killed in the United States bombing in North Vietnam was only a fraction of German and Japanese casualties during World War II. The total number of North Vietnamese civilians killed in all the U.S. bombing was under 60,000. Compare this to the 100,000 German civilians killed in the bombing of Dresden alone. But since most people are not aware of this, the killing of civilians in Vietnam looks like it was something entirely new in our history. Anyway, you need to cover these issues. Today, the United States faces a lot of enemies who use the same tactics the Viet Cong did. One of the reasons we had a disaster in Beirut in 1983, when Iranian guerrillas blew up U.S. Marine barracks, was that America forgot all the lessons it had learned about fighting an unconventional enemy. If we expect to win in the future, we have to learn the lessons of Vietnam. Joseph Miranda, Captain, U.S. Army. Uh, Mike Higgins, who I'm assuming is the person responding to letters, replies very quickly. Two letters, two very different points of view about our role in the NAM and its effect in the present. Who's right? Well, both have points and both are sure that they're the only one who's right. What do you think? So he kind of hedged there um, partially to save on space because these are two very, very long letters. And partially because, I don't know, maybe he felt like it wasn't his place to say anything? Not entirely sure. Nom notes this time around. Let's see. Dust off. Choppers pulling out. Guys out of the area called the dust off because of the dust the helicopters raise when they move in. Hair of the dog. Now used as slang for a drink to help a hangover headache go away. In olden times, it was thought that having the hair of a dog that bit you would help keep the pain and madness of rabies from hitting. Head man, leader of the Vietnamese farming village, often the elder of the village as well. Pacifying, making the village unable to help the VC in the war effort. Police his area, clean up his own part of the barracks. 
ROK, Republic of Korea or South Korea. Slicks, Huey helicopters used as troop carriers. Strackbutt, less than complimentary description of a military man who doesn't bend the rules. Top is a first sergeant, top sergeant, and VC or is, uh, stands for the Viet Cong, Charlie the enemy. Uh, one quick note, way back in number seven, due to a typo, we inadvertently gave the date of the French defeat as 1958. It was, in fact, 1954. Our thanks to First Sergeant Angel Cruz for pointing it out to us. Repeatedly. Sorry, top. Ads this month, there aren't really uh, many that are, are new. We have the M&M's ad, we have the, the model thing. We Although we do have an ad for the Sega Master System. Remember this thing? Uh, this was the, the the video game system for kids who didn't have Nintendo. I mean, I, I knew maybe one kid who had the Sega Master System. It wasn't that bad of a system, but um, I don't remember anybody ever really like it really catching on. Um, I think it was around the time when the Genesis made its debut that that took off uh, for Sega. That was that was a big deal. I remember my my roommates in college have a Genesis. Sega made some really good games. Uh, my favorite Sega produced game of all time was Afterburner. Uh, I used to play that in the arcade like Matt. It was love, love, love that game. Uh, this is the new now Sega explodes into your own home with more games than ever. Uh, more levels of play, more responsive controls. Plus, Sega has digital sound and graphics that are so real you swear you can smell the burning rubber. Just imagine the ultimate and arcade excitement loose in your living room. Sega's going to blow you away. And there's OutRun, Choplifter, Space Harrier, Ghostbusters, Rambo, Football, World Grand Prix. Uh, we have the same, we have New England Comics ad, we have the same Konami ad from a couple issues ago, we have a, on one page we have two ads on the bottom, is this Marvel superhero pins, where it's this sort of like close again pins that are about, uh, it's just an inch and a half tall, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, three of them feature Wolverine, two of them feature Spider-Man, and one of them features the Punisher, and you can order them for six bucks a piece. On the top half of the page, uh, there is an ad that says, one of these paranormals is going to kill a million people. The new universe on sale now from Marvel. Starbrand, DP7, Cyforce, and Justice. Uh, this, I think, was in the time when the new universe was in its last throes. And the art in this ad, it says in the corner, Bog, and I'm pretty sure, just looking at it, it's John. It's very early John Bogdano of art. Uh, he had a run on X-Factor in the very late 80s early 90s, right around the time, I'd say, of the Extinction Agenda. I think he actually did the art on those chapters, and then pretty soon after that, went over to DC and made his mark on the Superman, the Man of Steel title, which he was on uh, for a number of years. But I'm pretty sure that's his art. Um, uh, maybe if I remember, I'll, I'll scan the house ad and upload it to the to the show notes. Bullpen bulletins this month, uh, really not much. Celebrating Jack Kirby's seventh seventieth birthday, Rosemary McCormick has left uh, Marvel editorial to go teach elementary school. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie comes on as an editor. Uh, Dwayne McDuffie, of course, famous for his work with DC, uh, Milestone, and especially the DC animated universe uh, stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see him at the start of his career. It says that, um, this is really cool, though. Uh, he sold stories to television, skits to the Second City comedy troupe, and in his spare time has picked up a master's degree in physics 
and bachelor's degrees in English literature, film criticism, and dramatic writing. And now he'll bring all that knowledge and experience to bear here at Mighty Marvel. That's pretty cool. Beyond that, uh, there's a profile on Carl Potts and something by Anne Nascenti and the Wolf Pack. I'm not entirely sure what this is. And then at the bottom, look for our spectacular Spider-Man balloon and mighty Marvel Universe float in this year's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, November 26th on network television. I distinctly remember that one, um, and I remember it being pretty awesome. And I will try to hunt this down. XEntertainment.com a few years ago did a huge story on that Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and I believe that if they didn't have video clips, they had stills. And so if I can find it, I'll provide a link in the show notes. Uh, there's a Marvel tryout book ad, another ad for this Captain Power interactive video game where like you hold this big toy jet and you fire it at the screen and the screen fires back. And I do not remember this. I really don't. I must have been... I, maybe I was just too old at this point. Although I was 10 or 11. I mean, I was 10 years old. Somebody probably could have thought they might have wanted to give this to me, but I guess I just never, ever asked for it. Marvel subscription ad has Spidey's stocking hanging by the fire. And then uh, the back is a TSR ad. We're looking for a few good mutants. It's a X-Men module for the Marvel superheroes role-playing game. And that does it for the nom number 16. Uh, Come back in two weeks. I'll be taking a look at the next issue of the nom. Until then, thanks for listening. No time to wallow in the mire. Right now we can only lose And our love become a funeral pile You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.